Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, we have been reading together uh, over the past several weeks about David's life from the books of First and Second Samuel. And uh, here's where we are in the story. David is not the king yet. Um, he is on the run from Saul, who is the king of Israel. And for the last few weeks, we have been reading about David's life on the run. He has attracted uh, a guerrilla army of about 600 men to himself, and he has spent several years living outside of the normal uh, establishment order of things. Um, He's been living in the wilderness and even among uh, traditional enemies, and that's where David is uh, in the story that we're going to read together now. So let me read from uh, 1 Samuel 29 for us. I'll read verses 1 through 9. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel? who has been with me now for days and years. And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him, and the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is this not David, of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the Lord's do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now? That I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king. And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask um, that you'd be happy to use this word that we've just read and heard together to draw our eyes to the word Um, who bears our flesh, who's seated with you right now, praying for people like us. Father, meet us um, wherever we are, those of us who feel uh, really close to you and ready to hear from you, and those of us who don't feel that way. Meet those of us who have faith and those of us who aren't sure where we are. Father, meet us all through this story and show us the great grace of Jesus again and change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, I, uh, I can't remember the first time that I saw it, but I will watch uh, the original shampoo prank 
uh, every time it pops up in my feed or every time someone sends it to me. Uh, it's been floating around the internet for years now. Maybe some of you have seen it. It's this video uh, of a kid. He's probably 13 or 14 years old. And he is in uh, a pool shower room, probably rinsing off after a dip in the pool. His swim trunks make me think that's what's happening. And when the video starts, he's, he's rinsing shampoo out of his hair. And every few seconds, another guy sneaks up behind him. I always imagine uh, that it's his older brother who does this, sneaks up behind him and squirts a little bit of more shampoo into his hair. Um, and so this kid just keeps getting more and more lather, and he can't rinse it out. And every time it looks like it's going to clear out, the guy squirts a little more shampoo on his head. And the kid starts freaking out. He starts to panic and yell. And then off screen, there's another guy who says, hey, hurry up. We need to go. What's going on? And this poor kid just can't figure out what's happening. He can't see that guy who keeps adding more and more shampoo. It is an absurd and amazing minute and 45 seconds. And I thought uh, about that when I thought about this story that we just read together because what happens in the story that we just read together is clearly the work of an unseen hand. I don't know if you noticed it as we were reading it together, but the storyteller doesn't do any theologizing in it. In fact, the only person who mentions God in the story at all is Achish, this pagan warlord. And he only does it to be polite. David doesn't mention God. He doesn't even whisper a prayer to God. And so on the surface, it might seem like uh, God isn't acting in this story, that we don't see him anywhere. But on reflection, I think we'll see that he is everywhere, the unseen mover of the whole thing. And I think this story can help us to see how God moves in his mercy around people like us too. So like I said, uh, when the story begins, David is living in Philistine territory, but he's not living there as someone who is unknown. He has actually made an alliance with Achish, the king of Gath. Uh, you might remember that Gath is where Goliath had come from, but that stuff with Goliath was a long time ago now. And for the last 16 months, David and his men have been living in a little town called Ziklag, right in the heart of Philistine territory. David's reasoning for leaving the wilderness of Israel and heading into Philistine territory was simple. He figured that if he stayed within the borders of Israel, that Saul, murderous Saul, would eventually catch him and kill him. And so he says back in chapter 27, there's nothing better for me that I should, than that I should escape into the land of the Philistines. So he does. And Achish is immediately drawn to David. Achish immediately trusts David when he shows up. He makes him his bodyguard, and he gives David and his men that town to live in to base all of their operations out of. Now, the Philistines, uh, they were marauders as a people, and as David lives there, he begins to adopt that lifestyle. This leads us to a part of David's story uh, that is unpleasant to consider. You can uh, read about it later uh, this afternoon in chapter 27, but for now, I'll just tell you what happened. For 16 months, David 
and his men would go on raids outside of uh, Philistine territory, outside of Israelite territory, into towns that were along the route into Egypt. And when David did this, uh, he would take no prisoners. No one would be left alive in each of these towns. But he would take all of the animals and all of the plunder back with him. And when Achish would ask where he had been, he would lie to Achish. And he would say, I've been going to Judean towns. That was the reason uh, for all of the slaughter. It was so that no one uh, would be left alive to expose this long con that David has been working on Achish. So I want to be clear, um, God does not tell David to do this. David hatches this plan, and David carries this plan out. And I'm sure that it was just as horrific as it sounds. It, It made him rich. It helped him curry the favor of his Philistine patron, and it allowed him to evade Saul. And this in turn leads us back to something that we've seen before and that we will certainly seen again. This leads us back to the divided heart of David. He is cunning and talented and brave and charismatic, but he is also vindictive and incredibly violent and selfish. The blood that is on David's hands, we're going to see as we keep reading his story. It haunts him, it dogs him until the day that he dies. And scripture doesn't ever moralize this. It doesn't ever excuse David for it. It simply tells us who David was and who God was for David. And by extension, who God was for all of his people. So I think it's better for us to see it like this. than to set up some fake paper hero that burns away in an instant. And I think it's better, because I don't know about you, um, but I know a little bit about living with a divided heart, like David's. And so ultimately, my hope, your hope, is outside of ourselves. My hope for life, my hope for forgiveness, my hope for any sense of change or good in my life rests on someone who is outside of me, someone who is not me. And I think if we're being honest with ourselves, we will all say that. So obviously this double life has put David in a very bad spot, as double lives and divided hearts do. As we read uh, in verse 1 of the story, uh, the Philistines and the Israelites have gathered all of their forces for what will end up being a very decisive confrontation. And so now David is caught between his two lives. Will he fight with Achish and the Philistines against his own people? Or will he function as some kind of a fifth column and at some point defect mid-battle against his patron which will certainly lead to his swift death or his deliverance into Saul's hands. Every option in front of David is a very bad option. And if he has any plans to get out of this, we don't know what they are. I'm sure that if he could snap his fingers and disappear, he would snap his fingers and disappear. 
But instead, here's what happens. David and his men pass in formation with Achish in front of the commanders of the Philistine army. Well, David may have fooled old Achish, but the rest of the Philistine lords are not so easily duped. When they see David and when they see David's men, they say, what are these Hebrews doing here? That's what foreign nations called Israelites at the time. And Achish hears that question. He immediately snaps to David's defense. He says in verse 3, hey, guys, this is David. This is David. And since the day that he deserted to me, since the day that he defected, uh, I have found no fault in him right up until this very moment. I mean, this is the first of, of three times in this story where Achish proclaims David's innocence. <laughs> the third time, he actually tells David, you are as blameless as an angel of God. We call this uh, extreme dramatic irony because we know the real story about David and his relationship to Achish and what he's been doing. And every time Achish proclaims his innocence, we feel the tension ratchet up. Well, the Philistine lords, they don't buy the defense. They fear David's defection in battle. They say to him, look, he's going to try to reconcile himself to Saul. And what that will look like is a bunch of our people's heads on a platter. They even know the old folk song that people used to sing about Saul and David. And they sing it to Achish. And so Achish relents. He throws his hands up. He calls David over and he says, David, listen, man, to me it seems right that you would go in and out with me on this campaign, but the lords do not approve of you. Go back home and go back home peaceably. David, for whatever reason, can't resist keeping up the charade and he asks in this faux innocence, what have I done? What have I done that this would happen? But Achish tells him to go home and take his men in the morning and leave. And that's what happens. David is delivered. <laughs> David is saved. He doesn't have to fight against his own people. He doesn't have to re-defect and get killed for it. He doesn't have to risk being handed over to murderous Saul. And you know, we might be tempted to read this story and to think, man, David caught a break that day. <laughs> David got pretty lucky that day. But that would be a pretty ham-fisted reading because that would be to ignore the hand that has been moving in David's life, sometimes seen and sometimes unseen from the moment that his story began. You remember how it starts. God says, I, I see a king. I see a king in this little boy. And he sees through this king a good future for his people. And church, this is the deep and unifying and mysterious and gracious truth of the story of God and his people. God will always be faithful to the promises that he makes and so he remains faithful to this soon-to-be king and through him to the future of his people. 
God will always be faithful. Even for a guy like David, with blood on his hands. Even for a guy like David with a divided, duplicitous, and manipulative heart. Even for a guy like David who looks out for number one 98 times out of 100. And church, (laughs) this is the best news that people like us are going to hear today or ever. God is faithful to the promises that he makes to us to be our God even when we are unfaithful. God is faithful to us to the promises that he makes to be our God precisely because we are unfaithful. I mean, church, that is the meaning, that is the accomplishment of the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And Jesus, of course, was never ambiguous about this. He said right from the start, like we heard in the gospel lesson this morning, I did not come for the well. I came for the sick. And people like us, we are at the beginning of new life when we open our hands enough to admit that that's who we are. When we open our hands enough to admit that we need someone who's not us, someone who is outside of us on whom we can place our hope for forgiveness and for healing and for change. So here's the story. God's only mentioned in passing in it, like he's uh, some background scenery. And you could be tempted to think he didn't have anything to do with David's deliverance, but of course we know better than that. He is the unseen hand, and he is setting a completely undeserved table for David in the presence of his enemies. God has a million ways to do that for people like us. How unsearchable are his judgments? How inscrutable are his ways? But here's what I want to say, church. I mean, I think part of growing up in the faith is taking the time to try to search out his judgments and trace his ways. I think part of us growing up in our faith is to take time to look and to see and to think and to ask questions about all of the stuff that we have been carried through in our lives. I mean, how many times in our lives was the silent mercy and goodness of God present and we, we didn't see it in the moment? How often have we thought to ourselves that we're too clever by half and then we get caught up in our own duplicitous nonsense and still come out the other side delivered and with real wisdom. How many times in these last 12 pandemic-stained months has the quiet care of God been present for us, even in the midst of fear and uncertainty and loss and upheaval? How many times? God can be very quiet about these things, very subdued, and I can't pretend to know why that is, but I do know that our faith is strengthened and that our faith is encouraged if we make a habit of trying to trace out his unseen hand in our lives. If we make a habit out of trying to see his quiet mercy moving us towards good and towards flourishing.
Let me pray for us. Father, we ask um, first that we would be uh, people who have the faith enough and the courage enough to open our hands and admit that we need someone outside of us. That we aren't uh, the well as if there ever were the well. That we're the people who need someone outside of us to redeem us and to make us new and to heal us and to give us the power to change. Help us to believe that that's true and never hide from it. Always embrace it. Embrace Jesus in faith every day. <laughs> Father, help us to be uh, people who do that and, and through that learn to see and learn to trace, trace out your goodness in our lives. Help us to be a people who make a habit uh, out of looking back over our lives to see the ways that your mercy and goodness have been present in our lives. Father, do this so that we'll grow up in our faith, so that we'll be more mature in our faith, and do this so that through us you can love this broken world around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.